Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Oh, yeah! You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is here. I am. You are. Yeah. I'm present. I saw you on TikTok. You did. I haven't put yeah. anything up on TikTok in a bit. Well, I thought I saw yeah. you on TikTok. Someone on TikTok. They they got fifty thousand dollars. Oh, that was me. Yeah, in yeah. their bank, and then they <laughs> and they thought they'd keep it and spend it, and then they went on TikTok and told everyone. Well, that's so now, that's now the smart the bank, thing to do. Yeah, now the bank is calling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's kind of that's, fun today living yeah. in today's world. You know? That's crazy. It is, but I th- I thought it was you for sure. I thought, <laughs> thought you were in your dress and makeup and yeah, that's you know your other personality. My other personality, <laughs> one of many, one of many. Well, today we are in the true crime world, and uh, joining us we've got a returning guest who's. Uh, written a few books over the time we've talked to. So, Maureen Boyle, thank you for being here. And thanks for having me. It's always a fun time being on your show. Well, we try to make it that way because we get oh, – I think it's just the, the type of humor you have to have sometimes dealing with kind of dark cases. Yeah, you have you have to have a sense of humor. Uh, like cops have very dark, dark sense of humor. Reporters have a dark sense of humor. When you're talking about – these type of cases, you, you know, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Yeah, it's just a way of getting. Uh, it, it releases the stress a little bit, you know, the tension. I, I, I agree with you. Your your book now, this one that just came out June first, is called "Child Last Seen: The Search for Patty Desmond." So, of course, I always like to see uh, how someone finds a case. Like this is a case from what 1965. So, how did you come across this? Um, I came across uh, this case. Uh, well, doing the research for my second book, uh, The Ghost, The Hunt for uh, the, the Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and The Hunt for His Killer. I was in Pennsylvania in the greater Saxonburg area, and I was 
wrapping up some of the research and getting release forms and a variety of other things. And I was uh, talking with a retired state trooper who, with the Greg Adams case, had worked the case a little bit as a road trooper. He was there the day that the, the chief was killed. And we're talking a little bit, and he said, you know, I, I investigated this other case. It's a really good case. If you want, you know, you should do this case. And I'm thinking, okay, just what I want to do after I just spent hours and weeks and years on this case. But I'm like, yeah, well, what's it about? And he goes into it a little bit. And I said, yeah, but I need a lot of, you know, research on it, either uh, police reports, court uh, records, things like that. And he brought out some of his personal notes. And later on, when I got home, I started reading it. And it was a very, it was a fascinating case. Uh, and I put it aside because I was wrapping up the ghost. And then I had book events after that. And I decided, you know, you know, let me look at this once more. And that's how I began uh, writing this book. What is it about a case that you that you think that draws you or attracts you enough that you want to write about it? It's got to be interesting. It's got to be something that I'm going to learn from also. Because if I'm going to learn from uh, researching a case, the reader will also learn something about it. And that's why I'll include some, you know, odd facts about that time or about the forensics or um, how police or other investigators do certain things, because I think everyone, when you're reading, you need to be keep, you need to keep learning. It can't be just yes, someone was murdered and someone was caught, and here is the four corners of uh, the, the story. I want to give uh, people a little bit more depth. Um, I want them to know more about the individual, about the process that. Uh, investigators go through when they are looking to uh, solve a case, what was different in one case versus another, and also teach people and highlight to people how things have changed over the years. I think too many people today think that uh, murder cases can be solved in you know 60 minutes, maybe uh, 90 minutes, depending on if it's a a series or not, and, and that's not how it happens. Uh, it, 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 it's not? No, it's not. <laughs> you know, people people think that, you know, bingo, oh, cops arrive, they get some DNA, and bingo, they put it into some system, and they find out who the killer is. And it doesn't matter if it's a case from the 1950s or 40s or 60s or 70s or, or yesterday, and that they're going to get the, the results within an hour and they're going to be slapping the handcuffs on the killer, and they're going to go right to trial, and the person's going to be convicted. And that just isn't how things happen, because most most cases, either someone is caught right away because there is literally a smoking gun, or it takes uh, weeks, months, years, or decades. And then there's some cases that are not, never solved, even if uh, authorities believe they know who the killer is there just isn't enough evidence to uh, to convict the person so if there's not enough evidence to convict a prosecutor is not going to bring them to trial well you totally disillusioned me <laughs> yeah so, so when i look at a, at a case it's got to be something that i'm going to find interesting because i invest so much time in it uh, there's got to be a reason for me to do it i don't want to be bored interviewing people, doing any of the research. It's got to be some, some little quirky thing that, that I, I will also get out of it. And I, I need a lot of uh, records. 
it can't just be talking to two people. Uh, that is not what a, a you can't base a book on that um, because people's memories are very I won't say flawed, but people miss yeah people misremember things uh, and they don't mean to, especially as time goes on. So I need some you know hard hard records um, that are factual from that time. So if someone said something happened on a Tuesday and the official records say it happened on a Wednesday, I'm going to put in the book that it happened on a Wednesday and that they are misremembering. And I'll, I'll let them know, you know, the, the police reports say happened on a Wednesday. And they're like, oh, I guess it must be. No, it was a conspiracy. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, a whole different, that's a whole different other story about conspiracy because, yeah. Everyone in prison, as you know, is well, yeah. uh, innocent. They're innocent, uh, and they find yeah. Jesus. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think people don't realize how difficult it is to convict an individual. Jurors don't automatically convict. Well, I think jurors also, they, they're very personal, right? Um, people, people get feelings about different um, witnesses testifying and stuff, so they, it's how they feel. If they like the person that's up um, on trial, a lot of times they don't want to convict them, right? Oh, that's very, very true. From uh, years of covering court, uh, for decades, more, de more, more decades than I will admit to, I covered uh, police and courts, and I've sat through many uh, murder cases. And jurors like to identify with the witnesses. And if the witness is someone that they don't like, um, very often, and the jurors would never admit it. No one in the courtroom will admit it. But if they don't like the witness, sometimes they tend not to believe them. Uh, or if they relate to them in a, in a negative way, they know someone who is just like that person, they, uh, they may discount whatever they're saying. But if there's someone who's on the stand that they can relate to because it's, it's like them, they more likely will, will believe them. When I think of one murder case that I uh, covered, it was a shaken baby case. Uh, the, and the, it was a babysitter who was accused of injuring a child in her care. And the woman said no. The child, when the child was brought in, the child was sick and was sleeping. And later on, the, the child was unresponsive and she called 911. The defendant was very believable and very relatable to the jury. The mother of the child was not. She had a certain effect that made the those that were watching the case, no matter how much they dressed her up, they're looking at the mother and the mother's family as, you know, one of them could have done it, and then they just pawned it off on the on the babysitter, brought the brought the sick the kid to the babysitter, and the babysitter eventually was acquitted, but it was because they the jury did not believe some of the prime witnesses because of how they appeared and how they spoke, how they presented themselves. There was another case where a guy was, a teenager was accused of uh, setting his aunt and uncle's house on fire and killing them at the behest of his aunt, who was a year older than him. Actually, it was like his great aunt and uncle, uh, no, his cousin. I'm getting family relationships mixed up. Uh, claiming that, you know, his cousin is the one who is the brains of the operation, convinced him to set the house on fire. Um, and the uh, defense attorney had the, the kid, when he was sitting there at the defense uh, table, all dressed up wearing glasses. 
Uh, the defendant did not wear glasses. These glasses were just regular glass, not a prescription lens. And of course, once he was acquitted, off go the glasses and the, uh, the kid was out the door. Now, the brains of the operation was convicted and I believe uh, went on appeal and she may be out by now. But it, it, it's a matter of uh, how people relate to the witnesses in these cases. So this story, it's the search for Patty Desmond. Now, in 65, she, she was, what, 15 years old. Now, she was um, a person that ran away from her home before, right? And she'd always, I guess she didn't get along with her mother, mainly. I'm not sure. So when she disappeared this, this one night, it was really not much different than what had happened before. Well, what happened is, you know, she was listed when she disappeared. She, it was noted in police reports that she had run away before. Uh, some members of her family kind of dispute that. Uh, her mother had told police that she had left home before, but she would always be at a, a relative's house or someplace like that. And it was only once or twice before. And it was not for an extended period of time. In this case, uh, Patty was involved with an older uh, man who was married with a child. Uh, she was 15. He was 19. You know, when you look at the age difference, in terms of years, they'll say, oh, it's not that many years. But when someone's 15 and someone's 19, at that period of their lives, that is a large, very wide, uh, wide difference. The mother, her mother did not like him. Uh, he had a criminal record, and she had uh, warned her uh, daughter to stay away from him, to stay very far away from him. And, of course, Patty was smitten with him, and she, this one night, after an argument, the Patty slipped out of the house, uh, and this guy, uh, Conrad Miller, came by the house in his car, went with some friends. She slipped out and hopped in the car, and they, they took off. He dropped off some of his friends, saying, you know, we'll catch up with you later. They went off to a uh, mine area that was known for, you know, sort of like a lover's lane. And he claims that she said that she was pregnant by someone else, uh, and he uh, took her to a uh, fire hall, volunteer fire hall in another community where she said she was going to go to a friend's house. Uh, she never arrived at the friend's house the next day, and she obviously never went home. And her mother reported her missing the next day. Uh, police at the time, uh, Butler Township Police in Pennsylvania, uh, then after Patty was reported missing, interviewed uh, Miller, interviewed the a woman that Patty's Patty was go, home. Uh, Patty was going to interviewed some family members, interviewed some of Miller's friends, and they came up short. Uh, Miller kept to his story, and the case I won't say the case was dropped, but there really wasn't anything more that they could do at that time. Now this is also 1965. Uh, that's a time when uh, teenage teenagers who went missing. Those cases were treated very, very differently than they are today. Teenagers were presumed, very often presumed to be runaways. Uh, this is the, you know, the start of... Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. 
Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. The, what some would call it, the quote-unquote hippie error, the uh, flower child error, where there was a number of runaways in the U.S. going off to a California. California or New York or some other place. Um, so after a bit that her uh, missing persons report was put on hold uh, for, a few, for a number of years until her sister got into contact with someone who was involved in the criminal justice system uh, saying, you know, are they ever going to you know, solve my sister's case? She's been missing all this time. What's up? And uh, that person went to state police and state police who were not involved in the initial investigation reopened the case and re-interviewed some of the people initially uh, talked with and a host of other people. Uh, They really documented the case very, very well, but still came to the same conclusion. Last person to have seen Patty that they believed was this guy named Conrad Miller. No one had seen her since, and they really believed uh, that, you know, they hoped that she was still alive, but they, they believed that she was dead. Uh, some people thought she was in an abandoned mine. Some people thought she was um, buried underneath a state highway that was under construction at the time. Uh, no one knew where she was. Uh, and then the case went cold again because they had no body. Uh, while Miller had alluded to some friends that uh, he might have uh, done her harm, not quite saying that he killed her, but, you know, alluded to it initially that, you know, no one's ever going to find her type of uh, conversations. Um, and then by uh, later on in the, in the mid, mid uh, 80s, someone in the community came forward, notified the police about where there was a possibility of where Patty was from. And that is part of the really the gist of the case of what happens when Someone bucks the system in, in a way. Uh, the norms in, in part of a community and comes forward and does the right thing, uh, even though it's very, very difficult. Um, someone who brings justice to a family that they never met, brings justice for a teenage girl that they never knew, and at great um, risk to themselves. And that's part of uh, the story here. It goes beyond a cold case. It goes to the heart of people doing the right thing, doing the moral thing, and how you have to dig very deep to focus on that. Well, a case like this, I guess if, if you don't keep on it, you know, being a, a family member or somebody involved in it, if you don't keep pushing it, it gets it gets kind of buried, doesn't it? Because there's so many cases going on, and as the years go by, it kind of gets out of the out of touch, out of focus for the police or law enforcement. So you kind of have to keep it uh, keep it alive, so to speak. So that's got to be really hard to do. Yeah, and I I, I agree with you on that. Um, family members in all of these t- these cases, cold cases in particular, they have got to keep on investigators and keep it at the on the front burner, if you will. Uh, on the prosecutor's desk and the uh, state police or the local police uh, detectives on their uh, on their desk saying, you know, what about, what about, what about? Um, because otherwise the case will be forgotten. You know, in, in the case of Patty, it did get forgotten in, in many, many circles because the family didn't know what to do. 
uh, beyond, you know, notifying uh, authorities, uh, doing some searches on their own for her, keeping their ears open. She came from, she was one of six children. Uh, her father died when she was quite young, so her mother raised all six kids on her, pretty much on her own at a time when good jobs for women, 1960, you know, in the 60s and late 50s, good jobs for women, particularly in Western uh, Pennsylvania, and in the area where they were living, were really hard to come by. And women were paid much less than, than men. And there were certain types of jobs women were barred from getting. And those are generally the more expensive, the more high level uh, paying jobs. So the, the, her mother worked very, very hard uh, to basically keep a roof over their head, keep food on the table. Patty was a very shy girl. She was not a stunning uh, child. She had been bullied at school. Some of her classmates have said they, they kind of felt sorry for her. And she was a type of girl that I noted is would, would fall prey to someone who would um, pay attention to her. Uh, Conrad Miller at that time, when you look at photos of him, and there's a photo of him in the book, uh, a mugshot, of course, uh, where he looks like James Dean. He looks very different today, but you know, he's thin, the hair in the back, you know, slipped back. Um, he was a, a quote-unquote bad boy, and unfortunately, teenage girls, for a brief period of their time, sometimes they are attracted to bad boys. And he paid attention to Patty, uh, and I think she was very flattered. She wasn't worldly enough to uh, realize that this was going to lead to some something very, very bad. So, what do you think the the biggest problem in this case was? Was it just was it just the standard way the police treated a missing kid case back in the '60s, or was it the area they were in, or was it the family um, and what they were thought of by the police, maybe? Or what do you think the biggest problem was? Well, I think all, all of the above, the good points that you make. But I think a lot of it was that uh, time period uh, and the lack of the type of forensic um, tools that we have today. There, there wasn't anything that was found on him that could be traced to her. I don't think that investigators at the time knew where to look, where uh, some of the, the key evidence was. And... They uh, they pressed him quite a bit, but I think they could have perhaps pressed him a little bit more uh, in the case. The biggest hurdle that they had was that they had no body, so that they could not charge him without a body. I mean, you could always charge. It's been cases where people have been uh, charged with murder when their body hasn't been found, but there's other evidence that would substantiate the claim that uh, we're talking about a murder. In this case, there really was not enough evidence to charge initially. So that was, I think, the biggest, um, the biggest problem that they had in the case. Nobody. And and if you and if you charge too quickly, and the person is, and you don't have everything lined up, and the person is acquitted, and then later on down the road, you find the body, or you you find more evidence that this person good solid evidence that this person committed the murder, you can't recharge them because they've been acquitted. So that that is a, a problem in that type of a case. They needed something that was much more uh, ironclad. Besides the body, was there any evidence that was preserved into the 1980s when they um, 
eventually found her? Um, they didn't have any evidence from the 1960s, nothing at all. Uh, you know, they knew that she was in his car. So if they, you know, fingerprints in his car would prove nothing because he said she was here. There was no uh, blood that they could see in his car. You know, they, they really had nothing at that time initially in 1965 to charge him. So what do we know about this guy, this, this Conrad Eugene Miller? Like, what had he been in trouble with before with the law? Had he had, ever had problems with, with the law, and what was it? Well, he had a, a lot of uh, problems with the laws. Init initially, when he was uh, prior to the murder, there was a lot of petty crimes, you know, B&Es, thefts, that type of thing. Uh, he was what one member of law enforcement described to me as what they called a quote-unquote toad. Um, and I think that translates into other parts of the country. Would, uh, cops might call him a frequent flyer. They would they know who he was because they ran across him while investigating criminal activities. After Patty went missing, he went on and spent quite a bit of time in prison in South Carolina, uh, for a murder charge, not, I'm sorry, not a murder charge, for a rape charge. He was uh, charged with a sexual assault on a 13-year-old girl. When he was uh, paroled from there and moved back to Pennsylvania, he was then charged with a, arrested and charged in another rape uh, where he spent a considerable amount of time. And once he got out, uh, that's when someone came forward and that helped them uh, solve the case. So he has a really long criminal record. He spent most of his adult life in either a jail or a prison. It's just kind of, it's frustrating to see a case like this because you don't, who knows what was going on and why it all fell apart. But but they did eventually find her body. Yeah, they, they eventually found her and, and that is why they were able to prosecute him based on, based on that. Because they, they had enough evidence that that led them to to the body and some other collaborating evidence so they they had enough to to charge him which was 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 absolutely fascinating and you know what i found interesting about this case is uh, i learned a lot about human remains you know, it's not quite the type of thing that you discuss in, in cocktail parties you now you have friends i don't know about you guys but well in my cocktail parties we do. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, there's other places where people look at you like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of creepy. And you forget that only certain people will understand what you're talking about and find it fascinating. Other people, you know, give you the, the side eye and, you know, sidestep away from you. Like, oh, that's a very weird person, which is okay. I really didn't want to talk. That's, that's dinner conversation <laughs> to me. Yes, exactly. You know, you well, then you can appreciate that. You you look at them and you're like, well, I didn't want to talk to you anyhow because yeah. you must be pretty boring. <laughs> but, you know, I, I you learn about, you know, in each of my books, I've learned so many interesting things about science of which I was, science was not my subject in school. Science, math, foreign languages, all of that, that didn't go through my head at all. Reading, writing, history, that was what I enjoyed studying. But now I'm finding... I'm reading a lot of science textbooks for my for my books, complete with highlighting uh, things and how to identify remains and how to what bone it goes to what and how you can you know identify bone fragments. 
Yeah, that, that's that's my my, uh, my stories at any type of parties these days. So there's only a my my friends uh, circle is very very small. As a result, yeah, yeah. If you look at the grave, you go, well, you know that if that kind of looks like the mud <laughs> that scene I was at, yeah, or you know that's oh that's kind of uh, strawberry tart. It's kind of sticky, just like that blood that was sticking to my shoes as I walked through a crime scene. And, yeah, the people are like, okay, I'm going to, I think I'm going to go sit at the other end of the table. Yeah, past the gravy, and you're talking about, you know, splatter. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're, but as I said, those are the people you don't want to talk with. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly back away from the water. <laughs> Well, I'm wondering, uh, where was she found? Uh, she was found in a uh, in a house. Uh, well, what used to be a house in an area that they were not looking at. They never would have found her if someone hadn't come forward. Never, never in a million years would they have found her. So when you, when you say someone comes forward, of course we're not going to yeah. talk about the answers and all that. But that the person was was able to lead police to where Patty's remains were, and once they were able to find her. They, you know, that basically verified, yes, everything that was said was true. And that's how they were able to piece together the whole case. But that leads me to believe that um, someone knew what had happened at the time. Yes, someone did. And th th there might have been a few people even. like, And I just that always kind of makes me wonder why they didn't come forward. You know? There's a lot of reasons why people don't come forward. Um, sometimes it's it maybe may a, a relative. It may be a close friend. It might be someone who is involved somehow with the murder. There, there's a, a whole variety of reasons, or they're afraid. You know, that the whole no snitching culture that we talk about today, as if it's brand new, that has been going on for decades. And it was even in the 1960s. You don't tell on people, um, and that's what was uh, that was also another element of of the case people weren't going to turn them in until the very end. When you're doing a story like this and, and you're deciding to write it and investigate it and you're going through it at the end of it, do you, do you kind of hope people take away something from the book other than the actual case being solved in the story itself? Is there something you're trying to get across? Yes, and thanks for asking that. That is one of the, the things that I always try to, to do with all the books. What is, uh, what is the, 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 the larger picture? What's the larger lesson in these crimes? Other than don't don't commit murder, of course. But you know, that's the biggie. Don't commit murder. Yeah. <laughs> when you're at it, when you're at a cocktail party and they're talking about blood and guts, then yeah, don't hang out. But it, the, the bigger picture, of course, is it always goes to you know whether. It's Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol. Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's a sense of community or a life goes on or um, doing the right thing or overcoming obstacles in your life to, to solve something or to deal with uh, the grief or to deal with uh, the trauma. 
looking at what is the major themes, life themes that all of us can relate to. We can all relate to loss, hopefully not uh, involving murder, but we've all suffered some type of a loss in our lives. So people can relate to how families feel. I want people to take out some of the other, other themes that you don't give up or you, you keep on uh, moving forward, even in the, the face of, uh, of the worst type of, of tragedy that a family could suffer. Life goes on and how it goes on. And in, in this case, it is, it is some of the universal themes, of course, is um, doing the right thing, even if it is difficult, even if it is at what some would consider personal risk, possible personal risk, uh, criticism, that, that's one of the themes in Child Last Scene. Um, and just as in uh, The Ghost, uh, the, one of the major themes is determination uh, to seek, seek justice and the closeness of the community and how uh, community makes a difference, uh, how small communities can wrap themselves around uh, families to help soothe uh, the pain. How do you write the actual crime or crime scene when it's involving children and stuff. I don't, you know, in in true crime, you kind of have to tell people what happened when you're when you know the answers. But how is it you how is it that you write the uh, the violence? Let's say on the page with sensitivity and great difficulty. I am not a writer who writes gore. I keep in mind that family members will be reading this, so I. Stay away from a lot of the gory details. You know, there's. I'll take a scientific approach to the, the crime scenes, but I don't use include gore just for the sake of gore. So I'm I'm very very careful uh, with that because otherwise that, that is a turn off to readers, and I think it slows down the story. You can write and say things in a way that the reader gets it, but you don't have to. Uh, rub their face in it, so to speak. And when it comes to children, I, that's always, always difficult. Yeah, as I said, I, I am not a big fan of, uh, of gore in these types of stories. Uh, you can allude to it. You can quote the different um, court paperwork, but you don't need to go over the top, so to speak. At least I try, that's, that's how I do it. People do things differently. Did you ever get surprised after all these years still learning um, new things and new ways people have murdered or or committed crimes and stuff. Is there ever? Do you, have you seen it all, or is it just keep on just keep on finding out new stuff? Oh, I you know I I am always surprised with everything every single story I've ever written. There's always an element of surprise. Um, there's always a little twist to everything. You know, like there was one case a number of years ago where a guy killed his mother and kept her in her bedroom uh, until his brother came over wondering where Ma was um, and why she didn't come over for Christmas. And he, you know, in the New Year, Jan I believe it was January 2nd, came over and discovered, came over with the police. I, mean, I believe it was the police found, found her dead in the room and the windows were open and he had the air, I think he had the air conditioner on to, so that the body wouldn't smell. And he told his brother, I just wanted to spend one more holiday with mom. Norman Bates, you know, <laughs> she's in a recliner. Exactly. So that's exactly what I was thinking. And, you know, we all 
have seen Psycho, or most of us have, and you think, oh, that would never happen. And here it is, I'm <laughs> thinking, that was my first thought, that I've stepped into Psycho in this courtroom. So, so I am always surprised with um, all of the cases. There is no run-of-the-mill case, because if you delve, delve deep enough, there's always a little bit of a twist. It's, it's one of those things you have to look for. Um, and you have to keep asking questions. You have to go beyond the surface. And that's where, that's where you find the real story. But after, after each one of these cases, not quite often we talk to fiction writers too, and I always ask them a question about the, what each book does for them or how it changes them, them you know, in their life and stuff. So when you're writing true stories and it's more, more personalized because you meet people and stuff and you're more involved, how, how does each case and each book that you write about change you? Like at the end of it, when so when you finished Child Last Scene, completed it into the publisher, it's all all the edits done. When you sit down, how do you think you're different from before you started it? Um, I think I'm sm smarter. Uh, I have learned something, whether it's in with Child Last Scene. I've learned some new things about Pittsburgh, about other parts of Western Pennsylvania. I've learned things about how uh, small town life, how religion plays a major role in people's lives, how good people can be. That's the other thing that came out of a child's last scene. Very often you can you get jaded, you know, all people are in it for themselves, you know, people are scum, people are not nice. And then you peer into a different world that is not in your immediate circle and discover how good people can be and uh, you discover a, a different a different part of the country that is fairly close by um, different ways of viewing things and how people people how people are good I think that is the one thing about child last scene that I came away with even though it's a horrible story very sad and tragic story um, but it is also a story of people doing good and that's what I came out with. And also, there's a lot of gray area, too. Nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. There is in life, as, as you know, a, a very ever-widening gray area in everything. And I hope to also show the, that gray area of stories that people know. You know, you're rooting for this person, and you really hate that person. Um, but there is a middle part of a story that you need to fill in so that you understand both sides. So each book, each book does change you. It, it was, each, each of my books has changed me in terms of how I view things. Well, hopefully on a, on a positive note, um, what, what happened to uh, Patty's siblings? Were, were any of them able to see Conrad face justice? Yes. Yes, they did. Um, one of her older sisters had died in the meantime, but her mother saw, was able to see uh, Coach quote-unquote closure in the case, uh, and all of her other siblings were able to see justice found for her. Yeah, that, that I think is really important, that they were able to, to know where she was uh, and could put her to rest. You know, they'll never put the case behind them because you can't, but they, uh, but they were able to know the ending, which is, which is what is uh, was important. As horrific as it was, um, at least they knew the end. And a lot of families never know 
what the ending is. You know, there's so many families out there whose sons and daughters or mothers and fathers have gone missing, and they have no idea where they are. They're presumed dead, but there's always in the back of their mind, well, maybe they're not, you know. Every so often those cases pop up where someone went missing, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they show up someplace, you know, elsewhere in the country. And they always, well, maybe maybe that's what this case is, even though they know it's not. So um, at, the, at this point now, um, what happens? Do you, do you take a break from this sort of a case and, and all that before you jump into another one, or are you, just, are you working on something new already? Once I had this done, uh, well, and I was already doing research on two other books. So I, I'm giving myself a little bit of a break, maybe a couple of weeks, and then start doing more research on the two other projects that I'm working on, and then I'll see which one of the two is far enough along that I can really focus on that. What I'll often do with each of the, uh, the books, once they're done, I pack them all up in, in plastic bins, all of the uh, my notes and files and everything else associated with the case, put them in a plastic bin, seal it up, and put them to one side, and then start fresh with another plastic bin that I can put more files in. So I've got a number of bins already in my office, um, some in the attic. and uh, with, with the bodies. Yes, yes, with the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, I, you know, the, the number of boxes that I have for, uh, that went with my first book, uh, Shallow Graves, A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, which is a, a case that's very near and dear to my heart that involves serial serial killer who preyed on uh, women in the greater New Bedford, Massachusetts area in 1988. That's still unsolved, and two of the victims are still missing. Uh, I have just umpteen number of uh, boxes uh, with material in it. I hope to, I hope that case eventually is solved so I can haul those boxes out and write a, write a sequel with the, with the answer in that case. Well, it would be nice if it happened. Don't hold your breath. I'm not very positive of persons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you never know. You never know. After I wrote the, that book, uh, the number of people who came forward you know, saying, you know, it's dropping names of who the killer was or who they thought the killer was. You know, and not, not a single one came up with the same name. There's at least a dozen or two dozen names that, you know, oh, it's this person and, you know, you should look at this person, you should look at that person. And I always thought this person was, was kind of odd. And, you know, it, it all points to a lot of the frustration that investigators had with that serial killing case where there was wasn't that there was no suspects, there were too many suspects, which in itself is, is frightening when you step back and think about it. So let's see. Now, um, how do people find Maureen? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Do you have uh, bars you hang out in? Where do, where do people find Maureen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, on Twitter, it's uh, Maureen E. Boyle 1. Let me make sure I got it right. Um <laughs> Because, you know, when, when you have the app, uh, you never look at what your uh, your handle is. Everyone else needs to know that, but you don't. It's Maureen E., as in Elizabeth, Boyle, number one. Then I'm on Twitter for Instagram, Maureen E. Boyle. No numbers on it, which is good. And I have an author's page. Uh, I, I kind of lucked out on that with, <laughs> with Instagram. 
Um, and uh, on Facebook, I have an author's page, which is my name. There's also a, a Facebook page for Shallow Graves, a, a, the hunt for the New Bedford Highway serial killer. So people can, can reach me and message me through uh, any of those platforms. You're running a website? Yes. Uh, we've got two websites. Uh, one is Maureen Boyle, Maureen Boyle Writer, and the other one is shallowgravesthebook.com. And great. We'll have that up on the website, and people can find you. They don't have to search. You know, They can just find it and stuff, make it easy. And uh, Anyway, uh, and w- which bars are you hanging out in? <laughs> uh, <laughs> these days, uh, the bars are on our back deck because uh, we can get uh, better wines. <laughs> and the company sometimes is better also. It's, it's a bit quieter. No body parts, yes. Can I can, yeah. We can hide. Know the ground. <laughs> well, now the book we're talking about is Trout Last Scene. It's the search for Patty Desmond, and the writer's been our guest, Maureen Boyle. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to both of you guys. Thanks, Maureen. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson, Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Now back to the show. And we're back. You're listening to KCAA 106.5 FM, Los Angeles 102.3 FM, Riverside, and 1050 AM, Palm Springs. So welcome to... Martino Movie Reviews. I'm Dave North Martino. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Creed 3. Yes, I braved the movie theater for you <laughs> to check out Creed 3 2023 and to see if it was any good. So let me give you my thoughts on Creed 3. First, let me just say that I ran down to see this movie. I hadn't even had lunch. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to get a medium popcorn and a drink. And it came to 1750. <laughs> so I was like, what? What is going on? I used to balk when when they they charge like six bucks for a soda and a popcorn. 
1750. You get a meal for that. Fine, fine. I'll stop complaining. <laughs> anyway. So, of course, Creed 3 is a continuation of the Creed franchise, which has been excellent. Now, of course, that is a spinoff of the Rocky franchise, starting in 1976 with the original Rocky, and I believe ending in 2006 with uh, Rocky Balboa. So, as you probably know, Creed 3 2023 is a sports drama film. It stars Michael B. Jordan, right, who's in amazing shape, and this is his directorial debut. And he does fine here. It's great. But there are some problems, and we're going to get into that. It also stars Tessa Thompson as his wife, Bianca, and she's excellent here, just like in the last two installments. I mean, the perfect casting. Jonathan Majors, he was in Lovecraft Country. He does well here playing the villain. And then we have, of course, the incomparable Felicia Rashad back again as Adonis Creed or Donnie as his adoptive mother. But I don't think they utilized a lot of the cast as well as they could have. And I think this is comes down to script problems. Now, Sylvester Stallone gets a producer credit here. And there's been a lot of back and forth whether Stallone's blessing was given for this film. I had I had reservations even seeing this film. Just because Stallone he created Rocky, he created Apollo Creed, who is of course the deceased father of Adonis Creed. And, you know, there's some wonky things that happen in Hollywood. You know, I know he wished them well, but he didn't he either didn't want a lot of involvement and and I don't think this picture suffers because Rocky isn't in it. I think these characters can stand on their own, but I think Stallone's sense of storytelling is what we're missing. Stallone knows this type of film. He basically invented it. So it would have been helpful to have him on board and helping with the story. Now, at the start of this film, Adonis Donnie Creed who is played, of course, by Michael B. Jordan. He's riding high, right, in his career. And then an old friend returns, played by Majors, and it threatens everything he's worked for over the years. So as I've said, Creed Three has a stellar cast, but unfortunately the script is weak and there are some pacing issues. I found myself sometimes sitting and fidgeting. And in a movie like this, that shouldn't happen. Now, Michael B. Jordan, he is in the prime of his life. He's in great shape, but it feels like for most of the film, he's in the background in his own feature. Now, I know he's up front, but hear me out here. Adonis, Donnie, right, spends his time promoting a fight between Felix Chavez and Victor Drago, and he spends a, a lot of time remembering or reminiscing about his troubled past. Jordan has amazing charisma. We need more of him. We need more of him as a fighter. We need more of him even as a mentor. Again, with his directing, I don't have anything bad to say here. And I do look forward to seeing what else he, he does behind the camera. Now, Tessa Thompson, as Bianca Taylor Creed, she has great chemistry with Jordan. Bianca is having some troubles in her own career, some changes as well as Donnie's having changes. And their problems really should intersect, but that doesn't happen here. She really should be kind of a mirror to what's going 
on in his life and, and happening in his career. To me, their characters seem a little bit disconnected, even when a tragedy brings them together. But there's also Mila Davis-Kent as Amara Creed, and I feel she's perfectly cast. She's great as the daughter. And they give her a conflict, but it's very short, and it's never really resolved, and it's very muddled. I wonder if there were some scenes left on the cutting room floor. And it would be great if they would reassemble those. I'd like to see them in a director's cut. Now we have Jonathan Majors' Damien Diamond Dame Anderson. Interestingly enough, his character has a lot in common with Mr. T's character, Clubber Lang, in Rocky III, with more of a personal connection to Adonis. And I think that could have worked better. But they really try too hard to make Damien... They make him like a Rocky-like underdog, but you don't want to root for him. And then they go kind of by way of Rocky Four a little bit, but they kind of pull back. Then we have Felicia Rashad as Mary Ann Creed. And she's, she's uh, playing Donnie's adoptive mother. She has since the, the first movie. She's Apollo Creed's widow. Now, Felicia Rashad is Always a welcome addition here. Did you know that she's the sister of Debbie Allen? I had forgotten that. But I think, again, there's something missing. Her interactions with Donnie would usually bring tears to my eyes. I would usually be blubbering. I got a little misty-eyed during some of their exchanges, but it just, I don't know. I, I didn't feel the emotion this time. And I had I was nervous. I was nervous because before I ran down to the movie theater, I said, you know what I have to do? I have to get some Kleenex, right? I have to get tissues. But I didn't. I forgot. It didn't matter anyway. It didn't matter. But really, a film like this is supposed to pull at your emotions. It's supposed to pull at your heartstrings. It's supposed to, and it's supposed to lift you up. It's supposed to make you feel something. I just wasn't getting that from this film. Speaking of that, the last two Creed films weren't just moving. They were also fun. They were exciting. It was a good time. So, is Creed 3 worth the watch? Yes. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you watch it in a theater. But it is worth a watch when it comes to a streaming service. Especially if you're a completist. This film wasn't terrible. It has all the elements. It's fun to see the characters again. But am I going to purchase this film? I'm not sure. Maybe if there's a director's cut. Creed 3 is still in theaters. Now, this is my story doctoring section, and let me just say that truly, if you really look at Rocky, Rocky, the Rocky movies, and even first two Creed movies, what we're dealing with is the hero's journey. You have the hero, the hero sees a dragon, like in the fourth movie, Drago, and knows he, he's got to fight the dragon. So he gets his friends together, and he finds a wizard, and the wizard gives him some magic, in this case, some boxing magic, and then he prepares, he overcomes obstacles, he fights the dragon, he marries the princess, and he becomes king. That's the story. And all you have to do is kind of follow that. But what I say is don't stray from the formula that made these movies successful. It should seem like he's going to lose everything. And then focus on the love story that's the heart of a movie like this. He should still be losing until love saves him at the end. Creed 3 wasn't a knockout for me. 
But even with all its flaws, it earns a solid three stars. It's watchable, if a little lackluster. I'm Dave North Martino for Martino Movie Reviews. Full written reviews are up at our website. Now back to Alan R. Warren on the House of Mystery. So you're gone There's nothing left for me to carry on You went away On my most important birthday Remember you We used to play the game all day and hide away on my mind How do I say I love you a hundred times I fall to my knees and call you mine Now that you left this world I'm all alone What do I call my home I'm all alone Southern California's Mind Spring, the trifecta of progressive talk in Southern California. The legends you love and the best talk. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Community health centers and free clinics serve patients who are especially vulnerable to climate change. Many have chronic conditions that put them at higher risk during extreme heat. And many of the patients also work outdoors, so they are faced with extreme weather even when, for most people, they're able to escape. Saki Malik Cho is with AmeriCares, a health-focused relief and development organization. Her group recently worked with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health to create a toolkit for clinics. 
It includes guides for helping patients learn about the health risks of extreme weather and how to prepare. So, for example, our hurricane resources remind patients to refill their medications before a major storm. For our diabetic patients who depend on insulin, we remind them to keep ice packs in a cooler in the event of a power outage so that they can keep their medication at the required temperature. Cho says the resources help healthcare providers educate patients before an emergency. In certain locations, extreme weather events are happening more frequently, and so these conversations are really important to have ahead of time. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to K-Trip, where we play all the best classic water-wasting hits like Sprinklers in the Rain and Leaky Faucets. They're tunes from another time because now that we face a hotter, drier future, every drop counts. Despite an extremely wet winter, keep using less water, fixing leaks, and reusing indoor water for your garden. Visit SaveOurWater.com for more ways to conserve. Up next, brushing your teeth with the water on. Thinking about buying a home or maybe just refinancing? Let the mortgage voice Jeff Barton guide you. And I think if people get the expectation going into the process, there's less likely to be freaking out at the end about what's happening. The Mortgage Voice, Saturday at 3 p.m. and Sundays at noon here on KCAA 1050 AM and 106.5 FM. You're listening to the Inland Talk Express, 1050 AM and 106.5 FM, KCAA Loma Linda. I admit it, I don't always make the best food choices, and that's where Field of Green